The Sovereign Will of God Can we know and understand the will of God? What is the hypostatic union? Did Jesus overcome sin by His divine nature or by His human nature? Did Jesus die for everybody? Can we thwart the will of God for our lives? Is it God's will for anyone to suffer? How do we partake in the sufferings of Christ? I want to know. It is my great pleasure once again to welcome each and every one of you to this episode of The Doctrine of Christ with myself and Brother Jimmy Cooper. Because, whether you know it or not, the doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. And I'm so thankful to be able to say that one more time and bring the Word of God once again, Brother Jimmy. I hear you. I'm uh, always blessed to be here. Yeah. Always anxiously awaiting to uh, see what you're going to teach us tonight. And, you know, we was talking before the broadcast, all the crazy stuff you can get caught up in. And if you think about it, you'd lose your mind. But we've just, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And, that, and it, that's the key. We got to, it's so easy to, to see all the stuff going on and how crazy it all is. And, and to let fear start creeping into you a little bit. But what you just said is perfect. We keep our mind on him. He will keep us in perfect peace. Yeah. We serve the one that stilled the storm. And nothing that's going on in this old crazy country is taking the father by surprise. He is in control. And the Israel of God will survive and flourish. We take great comfort in that. Amen. And very appropriately, um, our study this evening, I entitled it The Sovereign Will of God. And, you know, <laughs> that is well, kind of perfect timing, it seems like. Well, it is. And, you know, and the sovereignty of God is a big topic and the will of God. And you can't really separate them. And we might have to follow this with another lesson. There's so much here, so much that is so important. But when we speak of the sovereignty of God. Webster's 1828. Supreme in power, possessing supreme dominion. That means you are in control. You are the absolute authority. No questions asked. You are sovereign. And when we relate that unto the teaching of Scripture, I'll read from Richard Watson's Theological Institutes, and he puts it quite well. The doctrine which we are there taught is that God's sovereignty consists in his doing many things by virtue of his own supreme right and dominion, but that this right is under the direction of his counsel or wisdom. And we did a DOC on the wisdom of God. Well, we did one on the omniscience of God. God knows everything. And the wisdom of God is how you what you do with the knowledge you know. And here in the sovereignty of God, this is how God directs 
every little thing according to his ultimate will. And this is, uh, there's a lot here for us to understand. So we're going to be asking a lot of questions that we need to know. And one of the most frequently asked questions is, can we know God's will? You know, a lot of people, they don't even know if it's possible to know God's will or not. And the Bible's very, very clear. And in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, And verse 9, the scripture says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This was Paul's goal, that they could be filled with the knowledge of his will. You know, and hopefully... Before we're done, we'll have a handle on that to be able to understand. We are to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And in the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure in which he hath purposed in himself. And God wants us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. He has made known his will unto us, according to Scripture. And in Ephesians 5, 17, wherefore, now here we got a command. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We are commanded to understand it. This is not something that's beyond our grasp. It's something that we should have a handle on. Now, there's a book here. It's called God's Will and How to Know It by C.W. Naylor. Probably nobody knows who this guy is. It was written in 1925. I'll hold a little picture of the guy up here. This is him in his hospital bed. He suffered an accident, and he was totally confined to his bed, paralyzed. He was able to use his arms and read and write. And he wrote this book about God's will and how to know it, probably the best book I've ever read on the subject. And he says something here that is worth the price of admission here. Now, he says this, and this is just so true, the scope and direction of God's will is to be determined by his character. Character goes far toward determining purpose. When you know what someone's character is, and when you get to know someone after a while and you know their character, you pretty much know how they're going to react and and what they're going to say. He goes on to say, character results from the use of the will. If the will habitually acts in an evil manner, the character becomes harmonious with such actions. Therefore, one's nature may be said to consist of the attitude of his will. Now, when we're talking about someone's nature and someone's character, what are we talking about? The attributes of an individual. That's what the nature and the character is. And if we understand the attributes of God, we know God's character and God's nature. This is the nature that he implants to us. The way, and we could not have done this 
this well unless we did it toward the end of the attributes, because to understand God's will, you understand God's attributes. You have to. And just think about it. And he goes on to a study. He says, we shall now refer to a few of his attributes and the relation of these attributes to his will. And if you know God's holy, you know that anything that promotes ungodliness isn't his will. You know, you know God is just. So anything that promotes injustice is not his will. Go down the line. And if you understand God's attributes, as we have studied, you know what God's will is. Don't be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. You and I have known each other long enough that we pretty much know how we think and how we're going to react. If I'm going to ask you something, you know, I got a pretty good idea because I know you. I know your character. And when we get that way with the Father, and this is why I love this so much, we've studied the attributes of God, and you can know what God's will is. Because individuals, we enforce our will in our life according to our character, our nature, and our character. God is the same way. And when we can get that, boy, we can understand what the will of the Lord is. It's not that hard, is it? It really isn't that hard. And, you know, we think, well, the will of God, I don't know. But we can know. We're commanded to know. And it's just a matter of knowing the Lord and his attributes. You know, it is right there for us, and it's so beautiful. I mean, it only makes sense that, that God would want us to know what his will is. Yeah. Yeah, we're commanded. And, you you know, you can either be unwise. Don't be unwise. Don't be unwise. But understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, what's wisdom? Wisdom is how you apply the knowledge you have. So without wisdom understanding and without knowing what God's will is, you know, we're going to be unwise. We're Mm. not we're not going to make proper decisions. So if God is holy and righteous, we cannot make decisions in our life that are going to lead us into unrighteousness and unholiness and things like this. It's really pretty much a no-brainer. And well, and not that there isn't things that we have to fine-tune and tweak, but really when you get the attributes of God, you know his character. You know his will. You know what the Lord's going to do. Now, in Luke chapter 22, and let's begin in verse 41. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer, he was come to his disciples. He found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Now, here we have Christ. Now, it's one thing to know what the will of God is, and it's another thing to break our wills to it. And that's where our part, this is what Christ did in Gethsemane. He broke his human will to the will of the Father. And this is something, if Christ prayed and sweat drops of blood in that situation, uh, you know, this is something that 
we know we're going to have to do. Now, some things here we're going to want to know, Jimmy. I know I want to know them. I know you want to know them. But I want to read here from a book called uh, Expository Thoughts on the Gospels by J.C. Ryle. He was a British preacher in the city of Manchester. uh, Or no, it wasn't Manchester. It was where the Beatles come from. Liverpool. That's it. Liverpool. Thank you. Yeah, he was a minister in Liverpool and uh, back in the 1800s. But he said this. He said, our Lord had two wills, a human and a divine will is distinctly taught in his person. The human nature and the divine were marvelously united. And as God, he had a will in entire harmony with the will of the Father, a will to suffer, to die, to bear our sins, and to provide redemption on the cross. But as man, he had a will which naturally shrank from pain and death. Now, I want to know just exactly how it worked with Jesus. There's a $10, well, there's about a $100 theological word called the hypostatic union. Now, what that means is this is the word when they would try to figure out what happened when Christ became a man. He was God, and yet he was born and became man, fully God, fully man. And when that divine nature united with the human, I mean, what really went on there? What was it like? Uh, And it wasn't like schizophrenia or multiple personalities. Well, we've got 50% divine nature, 50% human. And we'll, this morning, we'll use the divine and after we'll use the human. It wasn't like that. But when Christ became a man, the divine and the human natures were perfectly blended together. And he became the God man, he, and he will forever be. It's not like Jesus is going to say, okay, I'm going to get rid of my glorified body and going back to be the word that was with the Father. He will forever be the God man, and forever that divine and human nature is is joined together. Now, this was put so well. Uh, this is a lady uh, her name is Ruth Paxson, and I'm sure no one has ever heard of her. She spent her life uh, as a missionary in China and teaching very, very good stuff. And this is a book called Life on the Highest Plane, and she died in the 40s. But she said this, and she really understands it. He took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided. Wherefore is one Christ, very God and very man. And the more we can understand Jesus, the more we understand Jesus. And he was fully God, fully man, and, it, and you know, great is the mystery of godliness. We can't totally understand it, but we can believe what Scripture tells us in that miracle of Christ becoming man for us. It's just amazing. Well, let me ask you a question, and I know you're going to want to know the answer to this, Jimmy. But I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't like being put on the spot. You know, I got to pray. I got to prep for everything. I know it. That's why I love it. But. Jesus didn't sin. 
and it says he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. But when Jesus overcame sin, did he do it by his divine nature or did he do it by his human nature? I think he did it by his human nature by being obedient to the Father and giving us an example that we can do it as well. Cha-ching! Go to the head of the class, Brother Jimmy. All right. And and that, that is so true. And so many ministers get this wrong, and it's a very important question. And Ruth Paxton talks about that also. This is what she said. She said, perhaps we may comfort ourselves in defeat by thinking that he has made use of the prerogatives and powers of the deity and that his victory was gained through means beyond the reach of man. If this be true, the whole benefit to mankind of that wilderness experience is lost, and it was only a personal victory which the God-man gained. He alone would have profited by it, but there would have been no meaning in it for you and for me. For if he had recourse to deity and to divine power not at our disposal, then his triumph over sin and Satan does not avail for us. And that's pretty much what you said, and that's clear thinking. Uh, You know, if Jesus was like Clark Kent, you know, he's in a tough spot. Well, he's like Clark Kent. He goes into the phone booth, comes out Superman. Well, I can't do that. You know, we can't turn into Superman. And if Jesus did it like that, it doesn't mean anything for us. But as a man, he resigned his will unto the Father's, thy will be done. And in his humanity, I mean, nobody likes suffering, you know. Well, and that that passage you read in Luke 22 just was making me think like, it's okay for us to ask God for our will, but as long as we submit it underneath his will first. Yeah. Because Jesus, be... you're right. Christ, I mean, he's he knows about what's about to happen. Yeah. And he's <laughs> he knew all too well what was about to happen, and uh, his flesh was not looking forward to it. And he asked his own father, is there any other way we can do this? <laughs> but if not... Yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah. So it just struck me like it's okay for us to ask God, hey, can is it be all right if I do this or that, you know, but not my will, your will be done. That's exactly right. And I think we're going to be praying some of them prayers in the near future. The Lord knows what's coming on this country. And the hatred for Bible Christians is escalating exponentially. And we're going to be praying some of those, if it be your will, I'd just soon not go through this, but your will be done. If we're going to have to go through it, we'll go through it. And this is where we're going to face in the very near future, the breaking of our wills. We're going to have some Gethsemane prayers, just like Jesus did. Yeah. Just like Jesus did. Yeah. Now, let's think about this, the Lord's Prayer, and we treated this in quite a bit of depth on a DLC. Matthew 6 and 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, let's think what we're praying about when we pray that, and Matthew Henry said it so well, and Matthew Henry, he said this, thy kingdom come. This petition has plainly a reference to the doctrine which Christ preached at this time. 
which John Baptist had preached before, and which he afterwards sent his apostles out to preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right then, like he said in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you. He, like I say on the midnight ride, it all begins right now. And this is what Jesus said. The kingdom begins right now. He goes on to say, the kingdom of your father who is in heaven, the kingdom of the Messiah, this is at hand. Pray that it may come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We pray that God's kingdom being come we and others may be brought into obedience to all the laws and ordinance of it. Since God's kingdom is here, that's our prayer and that's our job, to bring people into obedience to God's law and God's covenant. And this is kind of a newsflash to some Christians. They don't know we're still in a covenant, but it's the new covenant and uh, it's still a covenant that we have obligations to be obedient to. Now, Matthew Poole said this, and you see, the kingdom is here now, and when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying, Lord, use me to be an instrument in your kingdom right now. And we're also praying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that it's going to really come one of these days, and it's going to push away everything that is unclean and ungodly. And Matthew Poole, he said this, let the Lord rule over all nations of the earth. And that's literally what we're praying for. God, be sovereign, be totally sovereign in your kingdom. Let them freely be subject to your laws and to his son, Jesus Christ. Let the gospel of the kingdom be published. And you know, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached unto all the nations, but I don't hear much gospel of the kingdom being preached to where we are to bring people into obedience with God's laws and covenants. I don't hear a lot of that. In fact, pretty much none of it. You know, most of what we hear is anything but that. He goes on to say, let the gospel of the kingdom be published and prosper by bringing all thoughts into a captivity to it. And let the kingdom of God come more within the hearts of all men and hasten the revelation of the kingdom of glory. Now, this is what happens as we pray, and this is outlined perfectly in John eighteen thirty six. The kingdom is here now. And our business now is kingdom business. And this is how we find the will of God. We will not find the will of God until we understand the character of the sovereign God. And his will is to impose his attributes into a people that will willingly accept them. And for those people to be salt and light in the earth we're in, to put forth God's kingdom on the earth by bringing other people into obedience where we will all line up with God's attributes. And in John chapter 18 and verse 36, our work, you know, when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we shew forth the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, we're going to have quite a different deal. Uh, John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, 
then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. And this tells us something, doesn't it? That we do not advance the kingdom of God with bullets and bombs. You know, whenever this happens, it's always wrong because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And when it comes, Jesus will personally return and there won't be any missing it. There will be no missing that kingdom. And I'm not saying, and neither did Jesus, that we don't have a right to protect ourselves or families or take recourse to the police if we would need so. But you don't go out and say, okay, like the Crusades. All right, everybody, you know, we're going to go back and kick the Muslims out of Jerusalem. We're going to have a little crusade here. The kingdom of God doesn't work like that. Mm-mm. Doesn't work like that at all. And um, if and this, I think the biggest struggle for believers in the near future here in America and pretty much throughout the world is to stay focused. Are we going to get into this movement, that movement, uh, get all wrapped up in this? And there's going to be people getting off into violence and stuff. Uh, it's going to happen. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Our work is kingdom work. And if we stay focused on the kingdom, we're focused on God's will. That's what God's will is. His attributes that we would come under his obedience and let the fruit of the Spirit through our relationship with Christ bring forth the attributes of God in our life. All we have to do, if we understand the attributes of God, we'll understand that pretty much what God's going to do. And, you know, when you look at this old crazy world and you understand, we'll probably be talking about the wrath of God very soon. When you look at this old crazy country here in the USA, you know what's coming for it. And it ain't a fruit basket. You know, it's going to be horrible. Uh, It's going to be horrible to behold. And it will be well-deserved. Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 11. God, look at your neighbor and say, God has a plan for your life. God has his will that he wants to bring forth, and he's going to win. You know, he's going to win. If you're fighting against God's will, that's not a battle you're going to win. But he's got a plan for each and every one of our lives. Isn't that awesome? And we've talked about things that just weren't coincidence, how little things in God's providence brings us to where we are at a point in time and unites us with other people. God has a plan for your life. And you'll never find God's plan for your life until you find the will of God and understand what it is. You will never be satisfied, fulfilled, or joyful, blessed all through the Sermon on the Mount, the stairway to heaven that we taught. Blessed, blessed, blessed. You're never going to be blessed. You're never going to have, we better get a hold right now of that joy and of that peace. And I was reading A.B. Simpson this evening, and he said something I think is really right, that the peace of God is constant. But the joy of God is intermittent. And there are times when the Lord will just give us joy to where uh, we can overcome the most adverse of situations. Paul in jail, 
uh, Paul and Silas in jail. They was in a tough spot. The joy of God came on them. They were singing in the jail cell. You know, this is how it is. We can keep that peace and we have to we have to pray and let Christ in us bring that forth. But that joy that will come to us to where it'll bust the the chains off even the most adverse situations. But God's got a plan for your life, and you need to find that plan. And when you do, you're going to be of most people most blessed and most happy and most joyful. Now, one of the questions that we get just constantly is I can't control my thoughts. I have these thoughts, and we, we all fight with that at times. But, you know, here's the deal. You can control your thoughts. You can bring every thought in submission, captivity to Christ, as Paul said. But you won't do it and get around Proverbs 6 and 3. Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. You will not establish your thoughts in the things that are right until we get up off our frozen chosen and actually do something for the kingdom. And the work of the kingdom of God is preaching the gospel to every creature, building up the body of Christ, doing whatever we can to help God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's where we plug into God's will. God is wanting to put his kingdom forth on the earth, and we can't find our will outside of his will. Until we plug into that program and our works are committed toward that end, we'll never find our peace and joy. When we make choices that are obviously selfish and wrong, and so many people do this in the jobs they take, they'll take a job that obviously is promoting ungodliness, that's obviously not good for them or their family, but because of money, they'll do it. And it always winds up the same. It's a sad end to that story of broken homes, uh, clouding out the pain with drugs and alcohol. The will of God is the way we'll be blessed. We can know it. We can understand it. And if a person prays and anyone that, you know, like we've done so far, we've tried to dig into every attribute of God. And when you understand the attributes, you understand God. And you know You pretty much, when you begin to know him, you see, we're in a personal relationship here. Mm -hmm. And the more we know him, the more we know what his will is. Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, let's look at um, 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, and we're going to answer a question here. That is a question that some good men have disagreed on, and I'm convinced some good men have got this very wrong. And that's the question, did Jesus die for everybody? Now, I want to know that one, don't you, Jimmy? Yeah, because I've heard people talk about this, too, because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe. And and, and then it follows it up with that none would perish and that all would know him. So, yeah, there's I, I hear people talk about this all the time. And I think next week, Lord willing, we're going to get into, you know, Jesus said, You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Now, we're going to dig down. I want to know about that one, don't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, let's just read some scriptures. Uh, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we cannot understand the will of God and the heart of God until we believe this, that God desires everyone to come to repentance. And I know and I understand the terrible things people do. And um, that's God's heart. and That's God's will. We can't get away from that until we get that, that he wants everyone to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. He turns right around and tells us that Jesus said, we read the scripture, that few will really be saved. But it's amazing when the way of salvation is open to everybody and it's God's will for you to be saved, but yet so many people are fooled with turning away from that joy and peace and everlasting life. It's just um, it's just really a mystery the way human nature reacts and does the things that they do. Now, First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, and let's begin in verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved? Now, here we see God's will. Who will have all men to be saved? This is the will of God for everyone to come to salvation and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's will is for people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And what is truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what this series is dedicated to, putting forth the truth of Jesus. And we can expect and know we'll have the help of the Father in that because that's his will Mm -hmm. right there. Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And it's the plain teaching of Scripture that God wants everyone to be saved and that he gave himself a ransom for all. And when we understand that, we're ready for our marching orders in the Gospel of Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. And this is one of them scriptures that liberal scholars said shouldn't be in her Bible, but it should be in her Bible, Mark 16, 15. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is God's will. God's will is for us to share the gospel with people, to bring them into new birth and obedience to the laws of the kingdom, to teach them truth, the truth of Christ. That is God's will. And when we plug our works into that, we find the will of God in our life. You're not going to go by these things. You're not going to skip uh, committing your works unto the Lord and getting your mind right. It won't work like that. You won't ever find the will of God if you're over here somewhere doing things contrary to God's will that he wants to see come forth in this world. And everyone is an evangelist, every child of God. This isn't just to a few, but we are to share the gospel with every creature. And everyone in their life has opportunities to speak to certain people that probably no one else will. And this is our mandate 
And this is how we are going to find the will of God. It won't be found any other way. How do you, maybe you're getting to this, but my mind's just thinking about other scriptures, and this is probably where you were talking about how a lot of good people may get this wrong. You know, I'm thinking about scriptures that say, no man comes to the Father unless the Father draws him first. You know, uh, and like that one you said where Jesus said, I chose you. Mm-hmm. and that some people were chosen and predestined before the foundation of the earth. How do you tie all that in with this? Well, salvation is all of God and none of man. He draws us by his Holy Spirit. Nobody could ever believe if God did not draw and convict by the Holy Spirit. Everyone that's now a believer was once a sinner. And if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit convicting of their sin and drawing them and giving them the gift of faith to be able to believe, none of us would be Christians. It's all of God's mercy, and it's all of God's grace. And what was the other scripture you asked me about, Jimmy? Um, I I don't think I said a specific scripture. I know that uh, about the one. There's one in John, John 3. I mean, John 1, in the first chapter of John, where it talks about how God gives us the power to become yeah, John his 1, sons. 12. Uh, yeah, I think that would be John chapter 1. Let's try verse 12. Yeah. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And here again, we receive to as many as receive him. And, you know, that is a choice we have to choose to believe. Then we get the power through the Holy Spirit to become the sons of God. You know, that's a very straightforward statement. And it's amazing to me uh, the confusion on this issue. And it's not confusion, really. The Bible clearly says what it says. He died a ransom for all. He doesn't want anyone to be saved. It's his will for everyone to be saved. And this goes back not to Jesus Christ, but to J.C. John Calvin. And John Calvin taught the limited atonement. And there were many, and what I've often said about John Wesley and John Calvin is that John Wesley was at such a purity of understanding and teaching spiritual truth that the people that come after him, they went down. But the people that came after Calvin, they went up. And many of them, he taught some boneheaded things. Mm -hmm. And many of the people that would be called Calvinists that came after him, uh, they would tweak a lot of this stuff. But, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Calvin because he was just obviously wrong here. And a lot of places to say that there was a limited atonement, that Jesus did not die for everyone, that cannot be maintained biblically. And all of that leaven goes back to Calvin. Yeah, yeah, I hear people say he did die for all, all that he foreknew and forechose, you know, to, to be his. Yes, he did die for all those people, and it is his will that all of them are saved. But I guess that's I guess that's Calvin's teaching. Yeah. And and Calvin actually believed that there are some people 
that if you're not one of the elect, you're going to go to hell. It doesn't matter if you want to go to heaven, if you want to do right, you're just doomed. You're just doggone doomed. You're predestined to hell. And that's just wrong. You know, that's not the love of God that sent his son to die for the world. You know, who gave himself a ransom for all, who doesn't want anyone to perish, whose will is for all men to be saved. Jesus died for everybody. And because of that atonement, uh, we can preach and we can pray for the convicting power of the Holy Ghost to come on people. And it's just clear as day. I mean, to take these scriptures and and at this point, these people do just what the dispensationalists do. You have the answer before the questions ask and whatever scripture you'll try to you know, twist it till it fits in the game plan. But the plain teaching of scripture is there. And there's a lot here uh, that we need to understand in the election and the calling of God and the predestination. These are deep concepts. And I think probably next week um, we'll start with the text, you know, where Jesus said, you've not chosen me. I've chosen you. Just I want to know what that means, Jimmy. I want to know. And I do we'll. Too. We'll too. get we'll get into that. Now let me ask you another question. Okay. God's sovereign, God's all powerful. Can we thwart the will of God in our lives? Well, I mean, if we're disobedient. Yeah. It's kind of an old brainer, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if if we're disobedient, that Yeah, and and unrepentant, and I mean, I think we can. Well, sure we can. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I have many times. (laughs) Absolutely we can. We can absolutely uh, mess up the will of God in our life. And also, Romans 11, 29 says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Mm -hmm. And you can mess up, and you can get off on the wrong track, and you can understand and repent and come back. Yeah. You always are hurting. You're, you always hurt yourself doing that. But the Lord will restore and get you back on the game plan. But just think in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Now, this tells us a lot in this scripture. This is Jesus praying. And if Jesus prayed for them and they still resisted God's will, I think you and I can pray for people and they can go on to resist God's will. A lot. There's a lot of televangelists. They'll take Acts 16, 31, believe the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house, which is a very true scripture to that Philippian jailer. He believed and his whole family was saved. But you cannot have a telethon and say, all right, uh, send me your seed gift and believe and we'll guarantee your family be saved. That's not the way it works because we have a personal will and God will not overpower our will. He will deal with us and he will woo us and influence us with the spirit of God to bend our wills to his but he will not overpower your will. And I think every human being knows that's true. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that people don't want to hear today. 
that we are capable of making choices and you make choices every day of your life and you will be held accountable for the choices you make. I always think about that scripture where uh, I guess I think yeah. it's in Deuteronomy where uh, where it says today I put two choices in front of you, life and death. Yes. Choose life. Yes. That seems to be that there's an option. That's exactly right. And when we think and, um, you know, when Jesus said, Mark 1, 15, repent and believe the gospel. Now, that would be nonsensical if people did not have the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. We can choose to repent of our sin. The Holy Spirit will let us know we're sinners. We can either repent or we can just ride right over that conviction of God and keep exerting our own will. You know, and this is where eternity hangs in balance. Now, so many people, and I mean so many people, they're intellectually brilliant. Um, they're smart. They're clever. What's they're that saying? Well, you're too smart for your own good sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> the way we would used to say it, you're too. Way my mother would say it, you're too smart for your own britches, and uh, that's the way my mom would say it. But it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how smooth you are, if you do not live in obedience to God, you'll never really know what divine truth is. Mm -hmm. And this is the way. And this it's all in the will of God. Until you are willing to get yourself within the will of God. You're never going to really understand divine truth. You'll never really know if what you're saying is true or not. You'll have so much of an intellectual grasp, but you won't really know. Because John 7, 17, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The only way you'll really know if Jesus is true or not is to actually live in the will of the Father. Then you'll know. You'll know. It'll be unmistakable. The Spirit will bear witness to your heart. You'll see so many confirming things that you'll know that you know that you know. You will just know that you know. Now, there's also no finding the will of God outside of this uh, in Romans chapter 12. And, you know, we're commanded to understand. And if you don't understand the will of God, your whole life is just obviously going to be messed up. Yeah. And in Romans chapter 12, And we'll read verse 1 and 2. And these are texts we've read often and rightly so. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. The Bible commands us, don't be unwise, but understanding what the will of God is. Now, we're told we can prove it. We can prove it. We can know that we know that we know we're in God's will. We can prove it, but it doesn't come any other way than by bringing yourself as a living sacrifice not being conformed to the world, but being conformed to Christ. And you can know what could be more blessed than to know that you're in the will of God. Mm. 
how many believers really achieve this? I don't think very many, but everybody can. That's what we want each and every one listening to this DOC episode is that you can know the will of God. This isn't something beyond our grasp. If we will just take these steps, I guarantee you the Lord's going to prove it to you, and you're going to prove it to yourself. And it won't be this agonizing, well, wonder about this, wonder about that. We're going to know that we know, and it's it's a blessed thing. But it doesn't come any other way than that. Well, how do you how do you think if somebody want to know what the will of God is for, should I take this job over three states over? And, you know, since that's not something that's written in the Bible. Well, a lot of things the Lord leaves to herself. Like, ah, do I wear a blue shirt today or green one? You know, uh, the big question is, is this going to be a help to me in my work for the kingdom? Or will it be a hindrance? Uh, is this job going to draw me away from the will of God, or is it going to help me fulfill it? And a lot of times when you're in a job that's detrimental, to take a job that's going to get rid of those problems, absolutely that's God's will. It's always God's will for us to do things that are going to help us bring about God's will in our life, mm -hmm. put forth the kingdom of God upon the earth. The Father always thinks kingdom. The Father thinks kingdom. And if we'll understand the attributes of God, we'll understand what his will is. We'll know what God's will is. That's good. Yeah. And all, there's them little things we've got to week out. But if you just ask yourself those questions, we can know what God's will is. It's never God's will for us to do things that will hinder uh, our place in the kingdom. Never. Never. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, from that old pornea. This is an absolute part of the will of God. Um, one thing that has always set the ecclesia of the Israel of God apart from others is their view on sex. And Absolutely, the will of God is our sanctification, and that means our continually purging ourselves of carnality and drawing closer to him, and sanctification is a crisis and a process. There are things that are strongholds in our life. We have to explode with a little Holy Ghost dynamite, and there's sanctification in our life that comes through the course of life by learning and knowing and understanding and just drawing close to him. But this is the will of God, our sanctification. And until we are willing to keep purging that carnality out of our life, we'll never find God's will. And then it specifically mentions fornication. And uh, fornication, um, it, it's much like as it was at the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was so much immorality that the Catholicism was building orphanages just for the nuns' children. Uh, fornication and immorality was that blatant. Mm. And today, it's just as bad. Even in churches, the idea 
that marriage should be honored and that uh, there are sexual morals that we should adhere to. And the word pornea, of course, that's where we get our word pornography, the absolute explosion of the hardcore stuff that's just a flick away for every child that has a cell phone. You know, this is one of the big things that is going to set us apart, and you'll never find the will of God apart from sanctification and abstaining from fornication. This is right there in the Word of God, and this is nothing that's beyond us. Hmm. With the indwelling Christ, and even despite what the Da Vinci Code people say, he was never married. He never married. Uh, he lived his life in devotion to the Father. And, you know, some people, uh, I, I don't know, they just don't even think it's possible for them to live above sin, but it is. Well, I've heard, in, I've heard people say this before. <laughs> well, <laughs> if he was tempted every way that we are, then he had to have been married at some point, just to understand <laughs> what all that temptation's about. And um, he... Uh, and that that's really kind of silly, but um, Christ went through, and we're going to talk about his sufferings here in just a little bit. But uh, and you know, marriage is actually a blessing. Yeah. And someone that would make that statement, they don't know what a godly marriage is. Mm-hmm. You know, because a godly marriage is a blessing. How much of a help it is to have a godly helpmate? I guarantee you. FOJC would not accomplish nearly as much as what we do without Sister Donna. She works every day, hours every day, helping everything work. And um, having a for, good help For years now. For years, for decades. And uh, having a good helpmate's a good thing, not a bad thing. But, you know, this is the carnal understanding that that the world has, and we can't conform to that. We cannot conform our thinking to that. And, boy, here's another one that's going to be hard for a lot of our American churchgoers. Romans 2.18, and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. The law shows us what God's will is. And um, and just like Brother Poole And Matthew Henry said that this is what the gospel of the kingdom does. It brings people into obedience to God's kingdom that is here right now. Romans 1 and 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And these are things that cannot be left out, or you will no longer have uh, the gospel of the kingdom. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are great. Uh, you know, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast in verse 9, but we don't want to leave out verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Now, have you ever, and I hear I know you enough to know the answer before I ask it, but have you ever heard 
any of these beloved little prosperity pimps preach that it's not God's will for anyone to suffer? Have you ever heard that one? Yep. They write booklets on it. and um, uh, Those same people, I mean, they're writing it's God's will for everybody to be rich. Yeah. And successful and happy and all, everything they do. And, you know, this could not be um, a bigger lie out of the pit of hell. And when people make statements like this, they betray the fact for anyone that's paying attention. These people don't know the Lord. Mm-hmm. They really don't. That's the sad realization of it. Um, in First Peter chapter 3, verse 17, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing, than for evil doing. So it's God's will for us to suffer for doing good rather than doing bad. Now we can do stupid stuff and suffer for it. You know, people rob banks, they go to jail. They're suffering for their stupidity. But for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil. It's God's will for us to suffer for well-doing. Isn't that what we have so many examples of martyrs? I'm pretty sure they were suffering as they were dying and or as they spent years in prison or were being stoned or beaten. That seems like suffering to me. It absolutely is. I get a slight little headache and I'm done for the day. (laughs) And in 1 Peter 4.19, wrote the man that was crucified upside down. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Those that suffer according to the will of God. Now, God has a will. He wants to impart his attributes unto people, and he wants to put forth his kingdom on the earth through the people that submit themselves unto him in the kingdom. Jesus tried that, didn't he? And he suffered and he died. Now, when we do what Jesus did, and we have that same program, putting forth the gospel of the kingdom and teaching people to come into obedience to his laws and his kingdom, we'll suffer too. I guarantee but, you, you'll but we're, suffer we're too. Americans. We're Americans. Yeah. It's supposed to all be... Good and easy. And if if you sow a big enough seed gift, you won't have to suffer. You can believe God for no suffering. Mm. What an absolute revelation of just how lost these people are. They don't understand the kingdom. They don't understand the gospel. There are some people that need to come to the Lord for salvation. They're so far off. I mean, these are things that are so clear that when we miss the mission of Christ and the kingdom and the way he suffered, uh, the zeal of thine house hath consumed me. Um, we, you, you just don't want to miss this. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Peter wrote again, he said, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, when ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. This is like we've studied in the Beatitude, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness. You will. And this helps us to understand 
the sufferings. And, and these are things that are not optional. And there are people that are writing books telling you how you can avoid all suffering and how that suffering is not the will of God. But the word of God says, and I'm going to, Second Timothy chapter 2, and the 12th verse, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now, Jesus suffered to preach the kingdom of God's at hand. He suffered to teach the Sermon on the Mount and all of the things. They killed him, and they killed him in the worst way they could. When he was telling us, pick up your cross and follow me, what does that insinuate? You know, like cross, that, that's, that's suffering. Yeah. And it's it's such a paradox because as we do this, we find the peace and joy we can find no other way. But yet that suffering that the world will inflict upon us is inevitable. And if you try to avoid it, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If you do that, that will happen, you see. without And you see, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution because it's impossible for anyone to preach the real gospel and to labor to bring forth God's kingdom in the world by teaching people to obey the laws of the kingdom without suffering. It'll happen. You'll be rejected by your family, friends. It'll come from a dozen different directions. And to want to avoid that is just to say that you're not going to sign up for the program. Because if you're in the real program of God and the real mission of preaching the gospel to every creature seeking first the kingdom, they'll be suffering with it. But it'll be suffering of such a kind that through it all, the peace and the joy of God will be there that you'll know, man, this is just uh, this is just it. This is the will of God for my life. And you can prove it to yourself. Mm -hmm. You can prove it to yourself. Let's read a couple of scriptures in Hebrews, and these are so moving to me. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. And that didn't mean that he had any um, sin to be perfected of, but it meant that as a man, he was brought to perfection and perfect obedience. And he he always obeyed. There was never any sin or any wrongdoing in Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, let me ask you this. Did Jesus have to study his Bible? He did. He was he was always reading it in the synagogues and Jesus and his divine nature was omniscient. Mm-hmm. But if he would just use his omniscience to know every scripture there was, that would be an unfair advantage. And right. as a man, he learned obedience. 
He learned the word of God. He studied. There was times they came to making him a king in John chapter 6. He ran from them, and he ran to a place of prayer. Jesus would get away from everyone and pray. Now, we don't have to do that, you know, uh, but he did. And, of course, that's ridiculous. We we must learn Jesus at Gethsemane. He prayed until uh, he was sweating blood. And he broke his will to the fathers. He would, and you know, wouldn't that be something? Well, here, we'll make you king. You'll be the big guy. And um, he ran from them. I'm, a, I'm just going to go pray, get away from you people. But yet people today say that uh, it's all about that earthly kingdom. So, I mean, th- they're just well, so. But they, isn't that the same problem that the Jews of that day, they they always understood or thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom. It was the Messiah was going to come and set up a kingdom on earth and and overcome Rome and kick Rome out of the, out of yeah. the, the yeah. land. And they thought, yeah, this is it. Our earthly kingdom's right now. Come on, Jesus, let's do it now. See ya. <laughs> but then they turn around and say, we have but one king, and that's Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't play ball, we're going to kill you. And let me read this scripture again. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Hmm. Let's read that again. Verse 9, we better have an instant replay. And uh, being, We don't like that. That verse hurts. It stings. Yeah. And <laughs> how is it that all of these scriptures are so clear, and yet the modern evangelical establishment can just... And you see what happens. Obedience to God in a one-on-one covenant is replaced by obedience to a religious system. You know, obedience to God means you're here. It, it isn't about God's law. It's about you being here every time the door open, your financial commitment to my program. It, it, it's just a subtle shift. Well, and they always say, um, you can't be obedient. That's why we have to go through Christ. We are we are living and we get all this benefits because Christ's obedience is the one that that we we don't have to be obedient. Christ is our obedience. Yeah. As long as we believe in him and that's it. That's good enough. The imputed righteousness. Yeah, there you go. Jesus didn't just die for me, but he obeyed for me. He obeyed for me. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Therefore, his perfect obedience is imputed unto me. Yeah, I hear that all the time. Guess where that come from, Jimmy? The synagogue of Satan? It come from J.C. Oh, my not, goodness. Not Jesus Christ, but John Calvin. Yeah. And this is a big line of demarcation. The, hmm. uh, the ministers that followed Calvin in imputed righteousness, it's obvious where that went. But there were those, and this is something that Richard Baxter, the Puritan, uh, and John Wesley, they labored hard to set this straight. And many other people that uh, would even call them Calvinists do not believe this and teach it, because if you do, even the best intentions, you know, you're, you're sowing deep, deep uh, defilement 
within people. There's no other way that anything else could happen from that. That that almost it seems on the same level as believing that when you take the uh, sacraments that you're actually eating his body and drinking his blood. Yeah. It's on that same level to me. It is. It's um it's a it's a dangerous thing. <laughs> I always tell the story. Quite young in my Christian life, uh, what really got me thinking about this, I went to a church service and I heard a lady get up, she was testifying and she said Thank God, God can't see me when I sin. <laughs> and he and she goes on and on. I said, "Well, what in the world is this?" And she said, "Yeah, when I sin, all that God sees is Jesus." Yeah, and I thought, now I just bet He can see you when you sin. You know, the omniscient God can see you, but this is the thinking that uh, God can't see me when I sin. That that imputed righteousness. And they actually go so far as to say that for me to go to hell, Jesus would have to sin. And that's how nonsensical they they actually make that statement. Hey, that reminds me real quick. I heard that you recently were on the cutting edge and gave your testimony. I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Everybody should go listen to that. I'm I'm sure that's interesting. I haven't heard it yet. Yeah, and it was kind of interesting. Yeah, John, uh, John Hall wanted me come on there. We had a good time, and I got to talking about a lot of things I haven't even talked about in a lot of other times. But yeah, I really enjoyed that. And uh, yeah, yeah, that is indeed a fact. Were those the the formal uh, attributes of David? <laughs> yeah, the yeah, former. Was, I mean, not formal. Former. A little bit of the old man on display there. Yeah. Now, here's a blessed scripture. Of course, they all are, aren't they? 1 Peter 4.13. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Now, right there, everyone just should take a minute and get a hold of that. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings because we're preaching the same gospel he did. We're teaching the same doctrine he did. We are trying to bring people into the truth that he did. So, yeah, we will partake in his sufferings if we do what he did. Well, that seems like that would be a good teaching, David. Oh, yeah. A teaching dedicated to what were the sufferings of Jesus? Oh, boy, that that is a fabulous thing. I mean, if we're to be partakers of it, shouldn't we know what they all are? Yeah. Maybe that's a Doctrine of Christ episode. It is for sure, Jimmy. It is for sure. Absolutely. But rejoice inasmuch ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Yeah, this kingdom work that we're doing right now will suffer just like he did. But boy, there's a time coming when the kingdom come will be here. And what that's going to be. And I want to I want to clarify that also uh, with the scripture uh, in Second Peter three and ten. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. <laughs> Nobody's going to miss that. <laughs> Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and 
hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what we're praying for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, help me to seek first the kingdom and put forth your kingdom work. And one day you're going to return and you're going to burn this place. It's going it, to you're going to smoke it and there'll be a new heaven and new earth. That is the kingdom that will physically come, that we will be a part of that new heavens and that new earth. All right, Colossians 1.24, this is just a great scripture. Uh, and this also goes right along with the text we read in 1 Peter 4.13. We will just have to do um, a whole teaching on this. Colossians 1.24, and here again, Peter and Paul, they both put rejoice here. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And he was writing unto the church at Colossae, and he was rejoicing because he was suffering for them, because he was trying to preach the gospel, went to prison for it, but he was rejoicing in the sufferings he did for the body in Colossae, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, he preached the gospel, he taught the kingdom laws to us to obey. Paul did the very same thing. He was suffering just like Jesus did. And by being part of the body of Christ, that means we're the body of Christ. And we are filling up the sufferings of Christ by carrying out the same mission of putting forth the will of God and his kingdom on earth, that kingdom come, that will be done. And in that, there's a fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. We become a partaker of them. And, well, this is something we'll have to get into a lot more sometime. But the Bible says that he is the firstborn of many brethren. And there's a pattern. There's a pattern in the life of Christ that every believer will go through. And you can see these things in your life when you think about them. And um, it's just an awesome thing. But it is so true who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Read something here from John Gill. And John Gill said this. He said, this is on page 73. He says, this will of God should be borne in mind in everything we intend to do or go about saying, if the Lord will, we will do this and that and the other. And he's so right in everything we do, we should think whether it is the will of God or not. And um, let's read a couple scriptures in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 19, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. <laughs> and Paul was coming to do a little business with the false teachers. Brother Poole said, 
And when I come, then I shall understand these teachers of yours who so vilify me. I shall not regard so much their fine words and philosophical reasonings as what there is of spiritual life and power in them. And um, Paul was going to do a little business. I like that one. Um, In James chapter 4, and this is a, a very good scripture to keep in mind. In James chapter 4, and we'll read beginning in 13. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For what we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. You know, how many people, and how easy is it for us all to fall into this braggadocious boasting? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Well, you might not do anything. Uh, Thomas. I remember that that parable where the, the guy's like, I've got all these grains and stuff i i'm gonna tear down this barn and build me a bigger one and and what what happened to him that night (laughs) yeah yeah thomas manton our puritan friend he said on this text having having formally spoken against those that contemned the law he now speaketh against those that contemned providence promising themselves a long time in the world and a happy accomplishment of their carnal projects without any sense or thought of their own frailty or the sudden strokes of God. How unwise it is not to ever think about those things. And it's more than unwise. It's evil when we forget those things to the point of evil carnal boasting. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10. And that's the Christmas tree chapter, Jeremiah chapter 10. Learn not the way of the heathen. Don't cut down that tree and decorate it. Bring it in your house. Jeremiah 10, 23. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And it does not come from the carnal old man to be able to walk according to the will of God. Because Romans 12 and 1 will get you every time until you come as a living sacrifice and you conform your mind to the Lord and not the world. You'll never know what the will of God is. And when you do that, you're going to have that supernatural aid. Psalm 37 and verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. And The Lord has big things that he will accomplish, and it was going to be God's will that there would be one that would betray him. I don't think it had to be Judas, but Judas was the one that that gave into it and allowed Satan to enter him. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 8, for of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And it was God's will for Christ to die for us. 
And these people, even though they were evil and doing bad things, it was the will of God because it was bringing about the death of Christ for us and all of our sins. Yeah, what was that, what's that scripture where it says, it, and it pleased him that, that Christ was being bruised? Or how, how, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Yeah. And we're going to see this. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar was used as an instrument of God. And um, there are scriptures that speak of these pagan entities as his servant because they fulfill his will. Because when it's God's will to bring judgment, guess what? The person bringing judgment, even if they're uh, rankly ungodly, uh, they're fulfilling God's will because God is going to use ungodly people to judge this nation. Doesn't mean they're going to be saved. They don't know they're obeying God's will, but they're being used as instruments of God's will. And we need to understand that because we're going to see some wild things happen in the very near future. And let's just close with this thought in the book of Revelation, chapter 17. And the ten horns which thou sawest on the beast, and the Bible says there are ten kings without a kingdom. So I take this kind of obviously to mean that, um, you know, these are people with a lot of power, but they're not geographical kings. We're talking about the Rothschilds and the... Um, George Soros type people that really run the world, but they don't, they're not geographical kings, but they really are running the show. And the ten horns which thou sawest on the beast, these shall hate the whore or the religious system and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This uh, apostate religious system is going to have a fiery end. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. God is going to use these people that are even the architects of this new world order that is being enforced on us. He is even going to use them as instruments of judgment according to his will. And what we have to understand that if we will just seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, that all these things shall be added unto us, every one of our needs. And Isaiah 26 and 3, for thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. We will do well. With all of my heart.